Welcome to When Pigs Fly, a podcast that uncovers Cincinnati's rich business history from the 1800s to today. We talk to companies to learn the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business, and to prost to future innovation. Okay, welcome to our second episode of When Pigs Fly. We are the podcast that's uncovering Cincinnati's rich business history from the 1800s to today. I'm one of your co-hosts, Allie Martin. I'm Patrick Bailey. And we're back at it. Yay. They let us come back. (laughs) I know. Round two, our first episode was great with Greg Hand, how he really kind of gave us that establishing history lesson in terms of all of the industries and a lot of firsts ofs. Also covering a little bit of the brewery scene and the beer scene. And we're going to even be diving more into that today with Craig Manis. And I like to say that he's kind of the gatekeeper of our city because he has access to all, pretty much all of our underground tunnels. I love that. I love that. I yeah. re- we need to get, uh, get an episode down in one of those tunnels. And then- This is where we plant the seed. Right. This is it. Well, I guess listeners, if uh, you do not know this, one of our goals is to have a recording- in the, uh, the abandoned subway tunnels of Cincinnati. That's one of our goals. Oh, uh, just to get down just there. To get, well, true. Just to get down there. Because I don't think they let people down there anymore. But they mm-hmm. let people down in the underground brewery tunnels. That's yeah. one step closer. And so maybe uh, <laughs> Craig can help us work some magic and get into those subway tunnels. I know. Fingers crossed. It's really funny, too, because a lot of people, when they walk around Cincinnati downtown, they have no idea that there are tunnels on tunnels underneath them. Because Cincinnati's significance during Prohibition time between, you know, George Remus even with his speakeasies to a lot of those brewery tunnels, some of them stuck around, some of them didn't, but the history behind it is so rich. And uh, we were at one point in time known as the beer capital of the world in 1890. Do you want to know how many gallons? Let me take a guess. uh, 10 million gallons, probably like in a year. So, okay, listen to this. There's a lot (laughs) lot more than that. So, in 1860, there were as many as 36 breweries operating in Cincinnati. And then by 1889, that dropped off a little bit to around 23. Keep in mind, about 17 of them were just in Over the Rhine alone. Wow. For the majority, yeah, and, and around the west side as well. But collectively, they were brewing 37 million 700,000 gallons. And some of it was being shipped around the world to like South Africa and Europe. So that's where we, in 1890, we were dubbed the beer capital of the world. So we know how to drink. You know, even that whole industry was supporting, you know, all the all the legal activity across the river in Newport, you know, with oh, like yeah, the yeah. gangsters. I mean, before Vegas, it was Newport, Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. And that wasn't even until later, though, which is crazy. So the, the progression of from that time, which was even around like the Bobby Kennedy time, we're even talking before that during yeah. Prohibition time. And and the tunnels were were pretty much left abandoned until 2008. And which surprises where, me, like they weren't found, like really rediscovered until 2008. And I'm sure there, do you know how many tunnels that we're probably missing right now that we're probably walking over? And hopefully people like Craig Manis, who work for American Legacy Tours, will be able to discover those along the way, too. It's kind of so. like a modern day, like Indiana Jones kind of thing, you know? <laughs> if, I'm telling you, we, we'll, we'll get down to those tunnels and you're going to feel that way. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> All right. Well, let's bring in Craig. 
I think we are officially prosting now at Cartridge <laughs> Brewing, and we have AKA the gatekeeper of Cincinnati, Craig Manis here. He is with American Legacy Tours and knows so much about prohibition and the brewing scene from the 1800s to today. So we're really excited for you to educate us a little bit on the background of that and everyone else who might not be aware. I mean, we were just talking about pigs, so I'm super excited to kind of go down that Porkopolis history as well. Excited to be here. Give us the background of Cincinnati brewing history. So This is going to be a lot, folks. Just <laughs> We're just going to sit here in silence and drink beer. <laughs> well, I'm going to drink as much as I can while talking, so if I take a pause, so I'm taking a sip. So beer goes back really... Beer goes back to the early days of Cincinnati. The earliest brewery in Cincinnati was right around the Sawyer Point area, okay. the uh, Davis Emery Brewery. So that was an English brewery. There's really not much known about them other than they existed okay. and they were there. What's an English brewery for some of us? You have ales and you have lagers. Every beer falls into one of those two categories. Your ales typically have a higher alcohol content. They're easier to make. They ferment in a short amount of time and they're gonna ferment somewhere near room temperature. Typically around 65, 75 degrees. Your stouts, your porters, think Guinness. Mm. That's more ale style. Uh, so you have a lot of early immigrants to Cincinnati are English and Irish. A lot of the Irish live right around the riverbanks. So the Davis Embry Brewery opens up down kind of where the ballpark and arena are right now, down near Gateman's Cove area, Sawyer Point. Not much is known about that brewery other than it existed down in the riverbanks. So you had breweries from the early days of Cincinnati as a small little growing river town. When the beer explosion really takes off, that is because of the big wave of German immigration that starts in the 1830s. Okay. Two big waves of German immigration. You have the 1836 movement, known as the 36ers. Sounds like a football team. <laughs> and 1848, known as, want to take a wild guess? The 48ers. Boom, there you go. The 48ers were the real traditional <laughs> German group. Um, so they drink a lot of beer. <laughs> well, the early 30, the early group that comes in, so it really goes, a lot of this goes back, and uh, I'm gonna shift for a bit, Martin Baum. Martin Baum is considered the godfather of German immigration to Cincinnati. He's the one that built the Taft Museum of Art. So that mansion that sits there, Little Park, was built by Martin Baum. He was a German immigrant, a financier, and he owned pig iron foundries. So did he buy that from the Taft family? Themselves? He built that. Before the Taft family? Yes, he was the first resident. He built that house. And so Martin Baum, being German himself and owning these different businesses, he starts attracting German immigrants to come into Cincinnati to work for him. So he starts getting a bunch of Germans coming into the city. Now, this first wave of Germans really assimilated to American culture. They, they learned the language, they learned the customs, and they start building up over the Rhine. Because anything north, where Central Parkway is was the canal. North of the canal essentially was uninhabited, uninhabited land, pretty much wooded property. So Germans started building up that area. Now in 1848, there's a big civil war in Germany. This is when Germany was all separate states, not a unified nation. Correct. And so what happens during the Civil War is there's already a lot of Germans living in Cincinnati. So people start coming here. They're very cultured people and they flock to where other Germans are at. And you start to, they start to actually advertise openly in Germany. If you're moving to America, move to Cincinnati. That's the capital of Germany here. 
And that's when bre- that's when the breweries really start taking off, and they're making the lager style beer. Lagers typically have a lower alcohol content. That's why Germans love them. Because you can drink a lot of it. Pretty much all day. And keep hydrated. <laughs> I, on the other hand, have had an entire flight of IPAs. So that is the opposite of drinking lager beers. <laughs> Lagers are very hard to make too. Typically about four to six weeks to ferment them. And they ferment usually about 40 to 45 degrees. But lager beer today is the most consumed alcoholic beverage on the entire planet. So Germans start opening up, they start bringing a lot of lager. Yeah. to the city, which becomes widely popular. And lager, typically, it's lower alcohol, it's crisp, clean flavor, it's super great on a hot summer day. So to get to your, your question about what, how do they make this beer cold, that's why we have all these brewery tunnels in Cincinnati. Hmm. So the Germans would have to tunnel underground about 30 feet. Wow. And you have all these, brewer, all these old historic breweries around town that had old tunnels. We have about a dozen or so that are accessible. There's probably four or five times that many we haven't even discovered yet because any brewery making beer before 1900 would have tunneled underground for that colder temperature. So how, what percentage of the tunnels have been discovered and not discovered? I'd say there's not an entirely accurate way to know that because we haven't found what we haven't found. But based on what we have found, <laughs> I'd say we probably... don't know what we don't know. <laughs> right, probably about, there's probably like, we probably like 20, 25% of what's out there. That we've actually accessed. But what they would do is they would dig deep underground and you have these, and we do this on our tour with American Legacy Tours, Queen City Underground, Under the Market Underground Tours. They would dig about 30 feet underground. There's these vaulted arches. So just big open tunnel areas under these buildings. And those tunnels are always 55 degrees. So they would be close to a lagering temperature, but still a little bit off. But the lager beers they would make between the late fall and early spring getting access to blocks of ice and they would use ice and pump that through chilled copper piping 30 feet underground and drop that temperature to about 40 to 45 degrees. So we have all these underground refrigerators around the city specifically for making lager style beer. In fact, when you take those underground tunnels combined with the above ground historic brewing properties, Cincinnati has the biggest collection of pre-prohibition brewery architecture in all of America. So the biggest question is how much beer was being consumed and made during its heyday during that time? So as the Germans started opening up brewery after brewery after brewery in the late 1800s, at the height of brewing until prohibition, we had 27 breweries just in the downtown Cincinnati area. That's not including what was in Kentucky or different areas. But 27 breweries downtown, and about most of those were all in the Over the Rhine neighborhood. We were among the five biggest brewing cities in the entire nation and had more breweries per capita than any other city. In fact, about a dozen breweries were located just within a mile stretch of each other on McMicken Street, which was Hamilton Avenue at the time, giving that stretch of road the nickname of Beer Barons Boulevard. Love for the that. concentration of beer, beer yeah. and you know, let's you know, let's petition in. the city to rename that street. Well, how'd you like to live there and take an Uber home and <laughs> have to give your address? For the beer, beer beers, beer. like a uh, pass. Okay, so so there, there's beer everywhere, and a lot of that all 1800s that starts growing with a lot of German immigration. Now you asked about the beer consumption. About 60% of every drop of beer brewed in our city was consumed within a mile of the brewery itself. 
We, we were drinking. We were winners. <laughs> we were known as the wettest and drunkest city in America. Hallelujah. We drank, and we drank a lot. Now, I will point out the fact that the main source of water for residents was the canal, Ooh, which was mostly no. an open stagnant sewer. Mm. Oh, you think that's gross drinking? It's rumored parts of the canal could be crossed on the backs of pig carcasses alone without oh. getting your feet wet. And kids bathed in that. When pit. pigs float. <laughs> kids would swim in the canal at that same time. Ew. So it was, it was horrible. Uh, so kids all drink beer. They drink non-alcoholic beer because you couldn't drink water. Adults would drink, we were probably drinking about 3% just to hydrate. Mm-hmm. Maybe you drink some heavier stuff well, they kill later the bacteria, on. bacteria, right? They didn't know that at the time, but yes, because when you make beer, you boil it, which kills all the germs, and the alcohol takes the rest of it. Not until Louis Pasteur comes around, and we associate pasteurization with dairy products, but Louis Pasteur discovered the germ and bacteria because his beer spoiled, and he was upset that his beer kept tasting funny. So he put it under the microscope, discovers basically bacteria and the germ, and he... and pasteurization is created because of beer. beer. It's not because of his passion for science. No, he wasn't a cheese connoisseur or a real charcuterie enthusiast. No, he was a drinker. (laughs) Back to the days of the tunnel and beer consumption and then prohibition happened. Then what? Well, things got bad. They got really bad. Before I get into prohibition, because things are going to get really sad after that comes into effect. I mentioned we drank about 60% of everything brewed in the city doesn't travel more than a mile. Well, other numbers to put into account also, you have the Christian Borline Brewery, which was the largest brewery Cincinnati and the state of Ohio has ever seen. They were producing half a million barrels of beer a year. They started in later in the 1800s. George Wiedemann was the first, maybe not the first, but he was one of the early head brewmasters at the John Kaufman Brewery. Because for those listening, the Wiedemann Brewery is on the Kentucky side, so he went from the, the Kaufman Brewery over to He Canada crossed over the river, Newport. starts that up. And they were a huge, they were a very, very big brewery. Christian Moreland was doing about half a million barrels, and they were also one of the five biggest in America in the late 1800s. So they were a huge, huge brewing facility. Windish Mulhauser was doing, I think, around a quarter of a million or more. Same with John Halk. They were kind of right around there. At the height of Kaufman, they were doing around 80,000, and they were one of the five biggest. So we have a lot of breweries here today, but mostly small craft. When I mentioned we had 27 breweries, uh, most of those breweries were large, major production so like, they weren't uh, like, across the country. Like, they weren't just here in Cincinnati. They weren't across, all across the country, but a few of them did just have big distribution. John Kaufman, they would sell down to New Orleans, Atlanta, Nashville, popular in the South. Also, think of down South and how I described lager beer. You cannot tunnel underground. Also, they have warmer climates, so they don't get those winter months where they're going to have access to ice and that cooler underground temperature. So... The fact that this all started in Cincinnati, geographically, it just was a perfect location for making all of this lager. So a lot, you had a small handful of breweries that had big distribution. We never got past the Rocky Mountains, however, which would hurt us after Prohibition. We had so many people drinking our beer that distribution was not necessary because you had so many local people drinking your stuff. So they did. You didn't have to cast a white hour. Correct. They did take advantage of a lot of that, and with the canals also. Christian Moorline was an international distributor. 
So not only they had their own saloon in New York. That's really cool. And a lot a lot of breweries owned their own saloons. At the time, most of the saloons in Cincinnati were owned individually by breweries. So there's no distribution. You would just sell you know, directly to your bar, which is why it was also a problem making this lager in the winter. If you had a particularly hot, dry summer and people drinking lager like crazy, if you run out of beer, you're well, now your saloons are closed because you can't supply them. So you, you have were to buy all the beer before it made it to Right. So you have to buy beer from your competitors as a higher price, which is a big, big pain in the butt. Oh my gosh. They would go up the Miami Erie Canal to Lake Erie. So that canal was 284 miles here to Toledo. They'd go up to Lake Erie, cross the Erie Canal, and then they would ship to Europe. So you know it was good beer if Europeans are buying. Lake Erie to go to Europe. Lake Erie, because then you take the Erie Canal to the port of New York. Ah. And from there you ship out to New York. You go down the Ohio River, Mississippi, Port New Orleans, you sell the West Indies to South America. Moorline was the only brewery in America prior to Prohibition that sold to South America. So Cincinnati beer was getting distributed very widely. A lot was drinking locally, but a lot of that <laughs> beer did leave the city. Brand in the in the 1800s, that's something. Well, and it also just shows their manufacturing power, though, right at that mm. time. I mean, when you think of the scale, like you just said, it's an engineering you, you, feat. Yeah, it's an engine. Yeah, you the what we have now is a lot of those small craft breweries, which is great. I mean, heck, we're sitting in one right now, which is incredible. But that scale, like the tap rooms, weren't a thing. The brew pubs weren't a thing. I mentioned we were a wet city. We drank a lot in 1890 alone. <laughs> 1890, this town had 1,841 registered drinking establishments. 1,841 in what year? 1890. Yes, I was right on that one. Okay, 1890. (laughs) Sir, Wikipedia facts are correct. Talk about that in the 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 intro. intro. (laughs) Now keep in mind, a lot of the hilltops weren't annexed yet. Mount Auburn was its own city. Coryville, these are all independent towns. So we're talking seven square miles in the river basin. There was basically one drinking establishment for every 80 adult Cincinnatians. Now, on Vine Street alone, there's eight blocks to Vine Street. We had 136 drinking establishments in just those eight blocks. So, okay. To give you an idea what that would look like. What the heck happened then? We all know what's coming because history. Prohibition. Like, if that was our economic powerhouse. Yeah. What happened to us as a city once that? Yeah. Beer overall was the number one industry in Cincinnati. It was typically listed as one of the top five industries we had, but when you take all the components and parts that go into that, it it was the biggest. I mean, you have not just the breweries, you have all of the saloons, the bottle makers, the coopers who are making the barrels. From here to Dayton, Ohio was all hops and grain farms. Pretty much everything was sourced locally. So you have all the these ingredients this coming out of there. Was basically around beer. And then you have the Teamsters who are moving all the products. Ohio, sadly, was really the hotbed and birth of the Prohibition movement. You have the Women's Christian Temperance Union that comes out of Hillsborough, Ohio. And you have the Anti-Saloon League. Those jerks. <laughs> out of, I believe, Defiance, Ohio, up north. But Cincinnati fought harder than any other place in the country against Prohibition, but we had the rest of the state fighting for it. And uh, Prohibition's what ends up killing, killing the party and shutting things down. Now, I will point out one of the most famous Prohibitionists, lovely lady by the name of Carrie Nation. Hey, by the way, just a few days ago, a hundred something years ago, smashed her first bar. December, <laughs> December 27th, <Crazy> lady. <laughs> December 27th of 1900. She took a hatchet job to her first bar. 
She just grabbed a hatchet and started and, going to town on the Ballard. And if you go to Nation Barn now in uh, Pendleton, there's a reason why there's a hatchet a part of their logo. A part of their logo, I yeah. something new today. As Craig was saying. She's born in Kentucky. She makes a name for herself in Kansas. So out in Kansas, she one day decides she's going to do something about all this drinking and sin and all this going around. She takes a hatch to this bar, and she was an imposing lady. She was six foot tall, and uh, she hates drinking. So she takes a hatch and smashes up this bar. And they're like, this old lady, this big old lady's in here, smashes this place, what are we going to do? And no one, you know, it's going to stop her. So she smashes this bar up, then she starts going all across the country, smashing places. She gets a contingent of ladies and followers that will stand outside on sidewalks and sing hymnals and gospel music and Isn't cover up the sound of the ruckus that she's causing inside. So well known, in fact, bars start putting signs in them across America that say, all nations are welcome, except for Carrie. <laughs> now she comes to Cincinnati in 1901, and she steps foot on historic Vine Street and over the Rhine. Looks around, sees those 136 drinking establishments surrounding her. Now, a lot of these bars, from what I understand, stocked up on plate glass windows because they were expecting the damage that she was going to cause. And so they load up, prepared for the damages. She looks around, sees those 136 drinking establishments surrounding her. So overwhelmed by what she sees, she drops that hatchet to the sidewalk and famously said, I would drop dead from exhaustion. So our drinking saved our city. Hallelujah. So if you want to take down a, pro, a prohibitionist, just drink such an incredible amount of alcohol that they don't even know where to begin. So not only were we drinking all this stuff locally, our town was drinking two and a half times the entire national average in the 1890s. Uh, most people, most Americans drinking f 16 gallons of beer per year, the small little measly number. We're drinking over 40. You take children out of the equation, adults are drinking 200 gallons a year, about four gallons a week. I mean, it's a light Tuesday for some of us, but we, we, were, we were drinking a lot. And Carrie thought she was going to take us down. I don't think so, lady. <laughs> and this was still before Prohibition. Yeah, so different counties and states were voting themselves dry. You didn't really see this big federal push at the time, though, because somewhere around 35% of the entire federal budget was funded directly through the taxation of alcohol. Heavily taxed, heavily regulated. That's why the federal income tax was created. But the great, the noble experiment, as it was known, didn't quite work out. Now, you had a united front of the, the prohibitionists. They all had one goal and one goal in mind rid this country of alcohol. It started, off as, it started off as temperance, just drink less, be responsible. Then it started to be full on, nope, can't drink, make it all illegal. And the alcohol industry was very, uh, let's say, not, not, a unified, not a unified group. They're kind of all over the place. So now congressional districts are all drawn up per people. So one representative has pretty much an equal number of people that they all represent. We have all these weird you know, before gerrymandering. <laughs> yes. No, this is gerrymandered now, and all these crazy <laughs> patterns and puzzle pieces we have. But at least it is an equal number of people. Back at this time, they just kind of cut it up like a board, and you had one person representing equal amount of land. So you might have a representative in rural Ohio that has as much power as someone representing just the Cincinnati area. And so this is how prohibition is able to eventually get passed because. The prohibitionists have one platform, and that's, that's to make alcohol legal. And they start endorsing candidates that either support prohibition 
or do not. And they spread so much across this country and control all the politics across America mm. that they can just start putting their people in place and in place. And they are, they are building up. And it was inevitable because it's so hard as a politician, too, to run and be like, no, like, let's hold, let's drink, let's party, which I like those guys today. I'll tell you what, that's who I'm voting for. <laughs> but in the early 1900s, it's like, eh, not a good look, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people start... They start taking over and they start to grow, start to grow. And the movement continues and continues. And again, a united front versus a industry that is very much divided among themselves. And really the killing punch that gets prohibition over the finish line is World War I. Because now all things German are bad. All beers have German names. It's thought to be very unpatriotic to drink beer. There's different rumors that were growing and propaganda that if you buy beer, the breweries are sending their profits to Germany to support the German war effort. January 16th, 1919, the 18th Amendment is ratified. Andrew Volstead, look up his picture, because he looks like a real fun guy to drink with, by the way. <laughs> Big bushy mustache, very beady eyes, very angry looking man. He ends up taking over the writing of the legislation because again, this is very murky the illegalization of intoxicating beverages. What in the hell is an intoxicating beverage? And they make it so it's basically 0.1% alcohol mm. or such such an insane number that anything with alcohol is illegal. I say, what is mouthwash? <laughs> Malt extract is like 2%. <laughs> My goodness. Bitters. We're doomed. <laughs> Bitters as alcohol. So all these things become very much illegal and so prohibition goes to effect January 17, 1920. This would last 14 years. So 14 years we go through all this. But people don't stop drinking. The highest rate of alcohol consumption in America occurs during Prohibition. But the effect of Prohibition on the beer industry was really, really tough. And a lot of Germans left Cincinnati area, they go up to Canada, start working on Canadian breweries. Or a lot of them go back over to Europe and start working on uh, breweries over there. So during Prohibition, People are actually drinking more than they were before because now without the government heavily taxing and regulating alcohol, it becomes cheap and available. Plus also think about this, most saloons would have been men only. Women did go to certain bars, taverns, but you have a lot of these women pushing for prohibition. Unintended consequence, their daughters are packing speakeasies. And so, <laughs> but keep in mind also these speakeasies, and they're drinking more, but they're not necessarily drinking more beer, right? Beer, no, no beer. Beer takes a big hit. So you see more gins, cocktails, because the alcohol that's being produced, on the most so part, why did they not make so more good. To liquor versus beer. The way beer is made, so it's more large, large batch fermentation, so and everything's going on. You can make you can make small amounts. You can make liquor in really small amounts and distill it and. You have all these moonshiners and such across the hillsides making alcohol <laughs> as well. <laughs> you get a lot more of that, but the, the beer industry does take a major hit. And a lot of Germans end up going up to Canada, working Canadian breweries, or they're going over to Europe, uh, moving back home and getting jobs there. But beer takes a major, major hit. And the American palate changes so much during this time as well. You could get your hands on beer, but the stuff that's produced, it's, it's very light. This is where you start to see the light American lager start to come in. You know, a lot of the common beers you see today. And a lot of that palate shifts during Prohibition. Also, you have tons of crime that explodes during Prohibition. You have a lot of normal, 
adjusted good businessmen who become criminals overnight because it's incredibly lucrative to start bootlegging. Yes, so we have wildland gangland violence. The mob is growing exponentially. And this lasts for 14 years, and America starts to realize, hey, this so-called noble experiment we started, it's not working. People are drinking. Now we have all this crime. And I think the government probably realized at some point, hey, we're not getting taxed on this kind of stuff. (laughs) Where's our money? So FDR, as he was running for president in 1932, he says, what America needs right now is a drink. So he's running a lot on the platform of we need to put an end to this, because it's also a way to bring back jobs. If it wasn't for the Great Depression, we might not have seen the end of Prohibition, because we need to get America back to work. And the quickest way to do that is start opening up these alcohol-related businesses so we can start creating jobs. And so he, he gets elected. They're pushing for the 21st Amendment. And finally, on December 5th of 1933, Utah is the final state of the 75% required for an amendment, passes it, prohibition comes to an end. Hallelujah. What, Utah? Utah was the saving grace. A state well-known for their insane amount of alcohol consumption and wild partying. <laughs> They're just the Vegas, a little bit further west. So They ended up uh, helping pass, uh, being the ones that end Prohibition. So as Prohibition comes to an end, the 27 breweries in Cincinnati, only four survived Prohibition. Wow. Everyone goes out of business. Not to mention all these bars that we had, you know, all the barrel makers, bottlers. The city's devastated by it. Pewdipol, they made near beer, throw prohibition, uh, soda pop. So after a short amount of time, they're back, to, they're back to making beer. Now, Bruckman's Brewery took out a full-page ad in the December 6, 1933 Cincinnati Enquirer advertising their beer sales. <laughs> Somehow, they took to market in less than 24 hours. <laughs> a beer that takes about four to six weeks to ferment, so... They were ready to. I don't know. Some people are just a little proactive, but they were brewing for a while, not getting caught. The way they got through Prohibition, they were making a product called malt extract. That's an unfermented beer. Had a big warning label on the packaging. It said, warning, do not add yeast or else this will ferment. So that's Fleischmann's was killing it during Prohibition with the yeast sales. Not everyone was baking, you know? I know during during COVID, you go out and like all the flour's gone from the stores, but back then, uh, you know, there's no yeast on the shelves, so everyone's basically home brewing. Uh, wineries, wineries had grape extract said, do not add sugar and yeast and place in a cold, dark room for 10 to 14 days. So don't follow these easy to follow steps or you're so a criminal. So how, how does that affect today? So after World War II, things started booming. Things were going really great. The 1970s, everything shuts down again. Mass marketing, advertising, the big breweries get bigger and bigger. At one point, Three companies controlled 98% of the entire beer industry in America. We went from 4,000 breweries to three. And when Hudibal Shangling closed in 1995, we went from you know, 27 pre-prohibition to yeah. zero. No breweries. Here in Cincinnati. In Cincinnati. Beer industry's done. But that's all been coming back. A big push of the craft beer revolution, Sam Adams, and that comes back to Cincinnati. Jim Cook, who owns Sam Adams, born and raised in Cincinnati, great-grandfather's a brewer, grandfather, father, all master brewers. His, grand, his great-grandfather started the Cook Brewery in St. Louis, 
Well, Jim goes off to Harvard, gets a degree in finance, first in the whole family to get a college degree. Casual at Harvard. Good. Yeah, nice, Great guy nice flex that. move, right? You're going to go get a college education, just go to Harvard. Set a nice precedent for everyone else. Yeah. Well, he decides, ah, you know what? This is for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into the brewing industry, be a fourth-generation master brewer, follow the family footsteps. His father's so irritated at him that he's going to throw away a college degree on something as lowly as a brewer. They don't speak for months. Uh, finally reconcile over Christmas. His grandfather's living in Mount Lookout. And he's hosting Christmas dinner. Jim and his dad end up cleaning out the attic and find an old shoebox full of Cook family beer recipes. It's covered in dust, sitting there for about 30 years. Well, Jim's dad, knowing what he knows about brewing, starts looking through there, finds the recipe he thinks is best, and he hands it to Jim and says, son, if you're going to make a terrible decision, at least make a damn good beer. <laughs> so, Jim, so Jim takes his recipe back with him to Boston and starts the Boston Beer Company, and that recipe became Sam Adams' Boston Lager. Okay. That kind of ticks me off just a little bit. The because fact that he started here in Cincinnati. Cincinnati gets zero credit for Sam Adams, and then Boston gets all the credit. But he's growing it still here. True. Well, he was living in Boston and starting a craft beer revolution. So he wanted to take a revolutionary who was also a brewer, and that was Sam. But Jim also, they never really owned a commercial brewery. They made a small amount of beer in Boston, but he knew the big breweries all had space available for commercial brewing, and he would outsource brew. So he was outsourced brewing at the Hudipal Shanglin Brewery in 1994. So they were making Sam Adams here. They closed in 95. Sam Adams comes in in 97 and buys that brewery. So that's now the flagship brewery of Sam Adams. About 30% or so of their beer is all made here. And it's going under an $87 million renovation right now, growing and expanding. But since he starts building up craft beer in the 80s and he starts growing 90s. And then early 2000s, you start seeing breweries popping up in Cincinnati. And then right around 2007, the explosion happens. That's around right when Rheingeist opens up. You have Mad Tree. After that, Tafts opens up. Start seeing all these places grow. And then you start to see the neighborhood brewery. And now you can almost walk anywhere in this town to a brewery, no matter where you live. About 60 or so breweries in the whole greater Cincinnati region. And beer has all come full circle to this, basically from the cradle of beer in the 1800s to now one of the biggest craft brewery per capita areas you can find. And this place is, I would say, the craft beer capital of America once again. A lot, a lot, a lot of you beer. Heard your and, first folks. And we've come full circle. And if you caught it at the beginning, we are at Cartridge Brewing, which Kyle and Lindsay will be our first two business guests that we have on for episode three. And why we are posting right now um, to a little Cincinnati history. Craig, where is the best place that people can find more information about American Legacy Tours? AmericanLegacyTours.com. Cheers. Cheers. I learned a lot more about prohibition and brewing <laughs> in Cincinnati's history than I think I've ever knew I needed to know. I don't know. Like, <laughs> you know, there's, you know, what's funny is some of that and a good portion of that information carried over between what Greg Hand was mm. saying in the first episode and then what Greg Manis was saying in this episode. And I still question how we got anything done, <laughs> but, but somehow we managed to get it done. And I'm also very impressed with us as a city that our beer never made it out of the city. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that like the only reason why we weren't a major beer exporter is because we drank it. Yes. We were our own worst enemy. <laughs> Which also made very sense as to why we recorded this segment in a brewery. Very apropos. <laughs> very apropos. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I think I, also like 
the fact that our brewing history even goes back to the early 1800s, I thought it was just, you know, when the Germans came, that's when it happened. But it actually existed long before then. And then it existed up until, you know, our rich brewing history until everything seemed to die out around the 1870s, 1880s, it sounded no, like. Yeah. And then now it's making a resurgence. So, and I'm glad that, you know, Craig brought that up is that, you know, once again, we are becoming this local brewery titan again, which is exciting. It's exciting, especially in the sense that, I, 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 you know, you hear rumors. Oh, the craft beer bubble is about to pop, yada, yada, yada. Well, I mean, where we were recording this podcast, which is, well, then you'll hear it in our next episode at Cartridge Brewing, that they are proof mm. that it's it hasn't popped and that if you have a vision, you can make it happen. And all our little small neighborhoods are making that happen, which is cool. And the, the reason why they're making it happen is because they care about their communities. And yeah. uh, that more like intrinsic, like value goal driver are what's motivating people to start yeah. these breweries and really build out their communities. And I'm really excited, you know, that beer (laughs) is one of the sparks of that we go again we go from (laughs) corn to pigs to soap and candles to beer and then again prohibition happens it kind of changes the scene here in cincinnati over time and it's built its way back up but there's something about again we're in the middle of a lot of cornfields it lends a hand to Mm. us whether it's stilling you know distilling and it's whiskey or if it's beer, we it just it works. We're close to the resources, <laughs> so we might as well consume it. But hopefully we've learned our lesson and don't consume all of it. All of it. <laughs> let's, let's also be smart and share it with the rest of the world. And that's our plan moving forward is to also share not just, you know, we, it's been very brewing heavy, a little bit Sorry. of the first episode <laughs> and the third episode, but we will also be moving into other categories of medical field and science and technology Mm. and we're excited to get this podcast rolling yeah so if you have any suggestions about you know businesses or guests please reach out to us um we're on twitter we're on facebook we're on instagram Mm -hmm. hopefully we'll be starting hopefully you'll be getting a newsletter soon yeah we're always down to talk with you so please feel free to reach out as we said before conversation (laughs) we're all about having those conversations and really building a community around this so we're super excited we can uh, i think let's cheers to that first innovation And here's some necessary legal stuff. Allie Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interest in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the EW Scripps Company and its affiliates or Generator Management LLC and its affiliates or any entity which employ us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation, nor provided any investment or legal advice on this show. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. We also want to give a shout out to Claire and Christian of Moonbow. They're the two artists of our intro song, which is so catchy and gets stuck in our heads all the time. So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen.
And Like the Night by Moonbow is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync.